We are continuing in our series that we've been in now for several weeks, which does actually focus on what it means to be that citizen of the kingdom and ambassador of the king that we are and are to be. The series is The Kingdom Way. What does it mean to be a citizen of the kingdom? And thankfully, the Lord Jesus gave us a manifesto of sorts. He made it very clear what it means to be a citizen of his kingdom, what that looks like, what that means for us, how we should function, how we should live in light of being that citizen of his kingdom. And that came in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is definitely Jesus's how-to when it comes to how to be a kingdom citizen and what that means. So we've been exploring that together. And today, as we continue on, the title of, of the message today is Unlearn What You Have Learned. Unlearn what you have learned. Because that's what Jesus was setting out to do in this next section of the Sermon on the Mount. He had a lot of unlearning to call his people to do because of all that they had learned and built up and developed through the years and all that had been deeply ingrained in their minds and their hearts. And he wanted them to unlearn that so that they could truly learn what it is to be a citizen of his kingdom. You guys have, I'm sure, at some point participated in the game of telephone, or you might have called it gossip or rumors. There might be another name for it, but you know where you sit in a line and someone says something to somebody, and then they say the thing to the next person and the next person down the line, and then by the time it gets to the end of that line, it's something completely different, right? totally different from what it started off being. It just gets changed each time it's passed on until at the end you don't know really what was said originally. There's very little that's accurate based on what was originally said. And it's been around a long time. It's a game that a lot of kids play. And unfortunately, a lot of adults continue to do this, only it's not in a game, if only it were. But you know the concept. And there's things like that that for a long time have been thought to be Scripture or scriptural quotes or scriptural statements or principles, paraphrases maybe, that get communicated and said a lot and heard and passed down, but aren't actually accurate with Scripture. They're not actually what Scripture says. You know, there's, there's all kinds of examples of this. Things like, you've heard this, I'm sure. Maybe you've said it. Probably have. God helps those who help themselves. We've heard that, probably have said it. But again and again in Scripture, we discover the exact opposite being true. And aren't you glad for that? Aren't you glad that we don't have a God that only helps those who help themselves? Oh, church, we have a God who helps those who realize we can't help ourselves. And we need His help, His grace, His intervention. But yet that gets said a whole lot. Here's another one. God won't give you more than you can handle. From Job to Joseph, and David, down through history to Jesus himself, to Peter and Paul, Scripture is full of examples to the contrary of that. God absolutely will give you more than you can handle because he wants you to know that he can handle anything that you can't handle just about anything, and you have to look to Him and depend on Him. Are you depending on the God who can handle everything this morning? I hope you are. If not, 
He wants you to. He's drawing you to Him for that. Depend on Him. He can handle whatever you've got in your life right now that you just can't handle. He can. Give it to Him. Here's another one. Do to others as they do to you. This one's a little bit more subtle. What's the Bible say? about? Does the Bible line up with that? Is that what the Bible really communicates? Mm, not so much. Not so much. Matthew seven twelve, which this is loosely based on and really butchered. Matthew seven twelve says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And I could go on and on. I mean, you know, there's, there's the uh, idea that it was the apple that Adam and Eve took, you know, and, and so you always see in pictures, you know, the apple with a bite out of it. Nowhere in Scripture that it was an apple. I mean, if I had to guess, it'd be more like a lemon because of how sour the situation got. You're welcome. We don't know. You know, I have no idea. Jonah and the whale. We don't know there was a whale. Probably wasn't. But we do these things. We take little bits and pieces of information and we hear people say it and it sounds good and it sounds right and it might kind of line up with the Bible. And, and so along the way, we start just kind of quoting that and, and equating that with what Scripture says when, in fact, it's just not accurate. That's exactly the situation that Jesus is faced with as we look into this next section of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 21 through 26 is where we're going to be today. And I invite you to look at that with me, follow along in your copy of God's Word. I will be reading from the CSB translation, just to give you a little bit of clarity there. And it shouldn't be too much of a problem for you to follow along in whatever translation you have. Matthew 5, 21 through 26 from the CSB. This is God's Word. Verse 21. You have heard that it was said, and that's key. You've heard that it was said to our ancestors, and the idea there passed down from our ancestors through each decade, through each generation. It just keeps getting passed down. You've heard again and again, Jesus is saying, do not murder. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. Here's what I want to point out right away before we go any further. Because it's really what Jesus is bringing out. Ancient doesn't automatically mean accurate. Ancient doesn't automatically mean accurate. Here's what I mean by that. Saying it in a different way. Just because something has been said or explained a certain way for a long time, it doesn't necessarily make it true. And we need to understand that distinction. Because it's easy for us to think, well, I mean, it's been said a long time, or I've heard this explained this way for a long, long time from a lot of different people. I think that must be true. It must be that way. I mean, I've been, I've been hearing this all my life. And that's certainly what would have been the case for Jesus' original audience here, his followers. They would have heard things like, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. They would have heard that their whole lives, and, and their parents would have heard that, and their parents' parents would have heard that. It would have been passed on that way for a long, long time, all the way back from their ancestors. The Jewish people 
built their entire lives around the law and the prophets. And we know that. I mean, you know that, right? The law and the prophets, the whole Old Testament, the Scripture. They built their lives. Everything about their culture was built around that. But unfortunately, it was also built around a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of misinterpretation, and a lot of misapplication. Not too much different from where we find ourselves in our culture and in our society and just about in every age. This was mostly due for them, due to previous generations of scribes and rabbis really muddying the waters with their own personal opinions and their own personal interpretations and traditions instead of objectively or fully allowing Scripture to speak for itself and letting it completely inform and direct what they taught the people. Again, sound familiar? It should. It should. It's a, an epidemic problem in the overall church of today. And that's a big reason, church, why studying and knowing Scripture for yourself is so important. An example of this, one of the best examples, is the Bereans in Acts. We find in Acts that the Bereans were a group of people that even though Paul, the Apostle Paul, was before them, teaching them, preaching to them, they didn't just take his word for it. They didn't just take his interpretation and run. Scripture says they went after they heard Paul, they went and searched mind, mind the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. In other words, they wanted to see if Scripture lined up with what Paul said, if what Paul said lined up with Scripture. Scripture, they knew, was the final authority in all things, not what Paul said. You've got to know Scripture for yourself. Don't just depend on what I say or anybody else that's up here in this space. God never intended for a pope or a series of popes to be the oracle of truth that you just heard what they said and ran with it and you didn't look in God's Word and allow His Spirit to speak to you. It's not what He intended. And just like we find true of our society and our culture today, it was true for them, and it was true in a major way, and that's what Jesus was addressing here. So, you've heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. Now, do not murder was indeed absolutely one of the Ten Commandments. So, I mean, that was right. But the experts of the law had been for a very long time teaching that anything short of murder would not be considered sin. And Jesus is exposing that to them, to the scribes and rabbis and Pharisees of the day, that to them the law was really only a matter of external performance, not the heart. And we said last week that God looks for inner holiness, not external performance. He's looking for a sincerity of heart and a sincerity in submission to the truth 
and the spirit of his word and his law, not showmanship. And Jesus is exposing that. He's drawing the attention away from what has been said and what's been interpreted to what actually is and what the intention of a commandment like do not murder really is all about. What he's saying is really what he would say later on in very blatant language. Matthew 15, 7-9, Jesus says this, of the same groups of people that he's shining light on here in this text, in this passage, the scribes, the Pharisees, the traditional rabbis, he said this of them. This is Matthew 15, 7-9. Hypocrites! Isaiah prophesied correctly about you when he said, this is God speaking through the prophet Isaiah, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands. It's a scathing rebuke, isn't it? But it's an accurate one. That's really what Jesus is trying to do. He's trying to shine the light on how they are coming up short. And generation after generation, they've been coming up short. They haven't been teaching the true nature of God's law. They haven't been drawing people to the heart of it, which is all about the heart of the person. They haven't been focusing on the spirit of the law. They've been focusing on the letter of the law, and they've been twisting the letter of the law, applying their own interpretations and their own opinions. So ancient, in this sense, doesn't necessarily or automatically mean that it's accurate. What Jesus is doing here, and it's what we need to have him do for us, in us, he's doing this. He's bringing the law, God's law, back to the matters of the heart. He's bringing it back to the heart. And this also goes back to And it's tied directly to the shocking statement that he had just made in verse 20 that we ended last week with, where he's dropped this bomb on his audience. He said, truly I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. And the eyes must have bulged and the jaws must have dropped. What? I mean, think about it. The Pharisees, they, to the people, they were the ultimate example of righteousness, at least on the outside. When it came to legalism, they were the perfect example. They were textbook. I mean, they were the religious rulers and leaders. And so for Jesus to say, if you want to see the kingdom of heaven, your righteousness has to go farther than theirs. And this is what he was saying. He was saying their righteousness is only external. It's skin deep. It's surface level. It's self-serving. It's self-exalting. That's not the kind of righteousness I'm after. I'm after the heart. And this is the beginning of very specific examples of what he was talking about. Very specific examples of how the Pharisees and the scribes and the rabbis and all the religious leaders of the day, how they had been operating on a very self-focused, self-centered righteousness, an external righteousness, not an internal holiness. So these are examples of how that's true and how he wants to steer his people away from that. We need that too, church. We need that too. We need to fight constantly a fleshly, holiness or, or a self-serving 
self-exalting righteousness, a, a righteousness that's only skin deep that might dot the I's and cross the T's, but hasn't really sunk down deep into our very soul and changed every fiber and aspect of our being. That's what we're called to. We're called to constant transformation, not just checking off a little box in areas of our life while other areas are completely untouched. Not what we're called to. Well, in the next verse he makes it clear that it is not only those who actually commit literal murder that are in danger of judgment, but also those who have a murderous heart are very much in danger of the judgment from God, not just from a human court. That's what was referenced in what had been said, what they've been hearing all these generations, that, you know, when he said, you've heard our ancients were told, and they just keep passing down that you're going to be in danger of judgment if you commit murder. That judgment they were referring to, that was civil court. That was a human court. They said nothing about the judgment from God. And Jesus is going to shed light on the fact that it's not just those who commit actual murder, but those who have a murderous heart that need to be afraid of and are in danger of very real and divine judgment. So let's look at that, Matthew five, twenty-two. So he just got done saying, I know you've heard that it's been said, you've all heard it, but I tell you, but I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister, and some of your translations might say whoever says to his brother, raka, and that meant empty-headed. That's what it literally meant. It was an Aramaic word. And if you said raka to someone, it meant you're empty-headed. It was another way of saying you're a waste of space. You're a waste of oxygen. You shouldn't even be alive. Why are you even here? I wish you weren't even here. I wish you weren't alive. It was a statement of just total and utter contempt. So whoever insults his brother or sister in that way will be subject to the court. And that's the, for us, think of the Supreme Court. For them, it would have been the Sanhedrin. That was the highest Jewish court. So he's saying, if you say something like that, that's enough to land you in court, in the highest court. And then he says, whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. Now, when we hear you fool, I mean, we think of how that is in our understanding, in our context, in our culture, but it went much, much deeper and farther in this context, at this time and in this culture. When someone would say, you fool, to someone, they were saying, you are godless and cursed, and I wish that God would go ahead and send you to, you know. It was a statement of judgment. It was basically saying, you're soulless. And you might as well go ahead and be in judgment in hell. And I wish you were. It was total hatred. And what Jesus was saying, if you have enough 
hatred and animosity in your heart towards someone else that you would actually wish they were in that kind of judgment and you are able to elevate yourself in such a superior way that you are casting judgment on someone saying they are soulless, they are godless, and they are cursed, then you are showing yourself to be in danger of the very hellfire that you are saying they should be in. That's the gravity of that statement. So he's saying, watch out. Because if you're able in your heart to have that kind of hatred towards someone else, that shows that you are in the very same boat that you are saying that they are in. Now when Jesus said, but I tell you, at the beginning of that statement, but I tell you, every time Jesus says that, and he's going to say that over and over in this next section of the Sermon on the Mount, Whenever he would say, I tell you, he is correcting the misconceptions and the wrong interpretations that had been passed down and continued to be a problem. And with his own divine authority, that's what's wrapped up in that when he says, but I tell you, he's saying, with my own divine authority, I'm telling you, and I want you to hear me on this. And with this, he's basically saying, let me tell you God's truth on the matter. You've heard it said this way. Now let me tell you God's truth on the matter. And in this statement, he's saying, you cannot justify yourselves because you've not committed the physical act of murder. He's saying it goes much deeper than that. And we can identify with that, right? I mean, you know this as well as I do. In our pride... And in our self-righteousness, we can do the same thing. Well, I know I'm not perfect, but at least I'm not as bad as... Well, I know I know that was sin, and I shouldn't have done that, but hey, it's not like I killed somebody. I mean, how many times have you thought that, even if you haven't said it? How many times have you looked at your own life, and then you look over here at the example of the life of so-and-so, And your self-righteousness creeps up, and it starts saying, whew, man, aren't you glad you're not? And Jesus is saying, you can't justify yourself based on your human standards of morality. You have to justify yourself based on God's standard of righteousness and morality. And just because you may not have committed the physical act of murder doesn't mean you're still not, in God's sight, guilty of murder as if you had. See, really what he was conveying, this is in my own words, is that murder starts in the heart before it's carried out by the hands. Murder starts in the heart before it's ever carried out by the hands. Here's why I know that's what he was trying to get across. Again, always church, side note here, Let Scripture speak for itself and compare Scripture with Scripture. That's what we need to do. Is this concept, is this principle found somewhere else where you can find correlation? And yes, it is. 1 John 3, 14-15 says this. 1 John 3, 14-15. Remember what Jesus had just been saying about murder, about anger, a murderous heart, 
an angry spirit that is murderous in its nature and in its expression. Hatred for someone else. 1 John 3, 14-15. The Apostle John says this, We know that we have passed from death to life. In other words, we know that we are saved. We know that we're truly in Christ. We know that we have passed from death to life because... We love our brothers and sisters. That's an identifier. That's a marker of a changed, regenerated heart. We love our brothers and sisters. And here's the contrast. The one who does not love remains in death. Everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. What? So, wait, you don't have to actually kill someone to be considered a murderer by God? Nope. So what Jesus was saying, here's what the Apostle John is saying. Everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. That's what Jesus was getting across. Jesus here in this statement, here in the Sermon on the Mount, what he's doing is he's addressing unrighteous anger. That's key. He's not saying any emotion or expression of anger is sin and in danger of judgment. We need to understand that. He's not saying anger in itself is always, always evil and liable for judgment. No, he is addressing unrighteous anger. Unrighteous anger. He's addressing the kind of anger that comes from a place of hatred or revenge. The kind that contains bitterness and holds on to a grudge. The kind of anger that refuses to be dealt with and refuses to be let go of. It's really what the Apostle Paul was saying and what James was saying. Let me just really quickly read that to you. Ephesians 4, 26-27. The Apostle Paul says this, Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. Oh my, we need to hear that. Some of us more than others. Don't sin in your expression of anger. Be angry over sin. Be angry over injustice. But don't cross the line into sin territory. And don't let the sun go down on your anger. and Don't give the devil an opportunity. Because that's what he's looking for. Oh, can I, can I seize their anger and turn it into something sinful? He's looking to do that all the time. James says it this way, James 1, 19-20, My dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak. We get that backwards many, many times. And here's the clincher, and slow to anger. That means a slow build. It, it should take... A long time to get to that point. It should be a build-up, not, not an instantly like a red line default thing. I go from zero to a hundred. That shouldn't be that way. Slow to speak and slow to anger. Why? For human anger, human selfish, self-focused, fleshly anger, does not accomplish God's righteousness. That's what Jesus was really communicating, conveying here. And we need to hear it just as much as the original audience did. Now, in verses 23 through 26 of Matthew 5, Matthew 5, 23 through 26, Jesus provides two very practical illustrations 
of what he was teaching. Two very practical illustrations which would have been easily understood and related to by his audience, and they were really you know, fleshing out what he was conveying in principle. Matthew five twenty three through 26. He says this, So, so you know, in light of what I've just told you, let me give you a couple examples. So, if you are offering your gift on the altar, something everybody would have done all the time, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, not that you have something against them, you remember, uh-oh, my brother or sister has something against me. So there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Here's what he says to do, and it's radical. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled with your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. What Jesus is teaching and communicating here is something very significant. And this is very applicable to us even though we don't have a temple and we don't go to an altar and offer a gift, it's still very applicable because what he's saying here is when you are going to worship, when you are going to the place of worship and you're worshiping God and you're, you're giving sacrifices and so, you know, insert sacrifices of praise. He's saying when that happens, you need to understand this. You need to think of worship this way. For God... To accept our worship, we have to be right with our fellow believers. That's huge, church. We need to not miss this because we do miss this. We miss this all the time. We have issues with our brothers or sisters. They have something against us or we have something against them. And instead of dealing with it, we come right through those doors and we come in and we try to sing these songs of worship and we try to pray and we try to hear a message from God's Word and we go out empty and we wonder why that is. Well, I just didn't hear from God today. Man, I wish the pastor would have just done a better job. Wow, I wish the music was so much better. I just didn't get anything out of church. Well, maybe it's because you had a huge block of sin on your mind and on your heart weighing you down so you couldn't hear from God. And your praise didn't go any higher than the ceiling. And maybe it's because it's attached to the fact that your brother or sister has this thing against you that you have allowed, that you have caused, whether that's on purpose and intentional or not. Could be inadvertently. This doesn't say that it's all your fault. It's just saying that there is something that has happened that they are holding against you and you need to clear it up. Whether you meant to do it, whether it was intentional or not, it could have been completely accidental. You didn't mean to at all. Maybe it's something that you didn't have any idea they were taking it a certain way, but then you, you heard about it and instead of dealing with it there on the spot, you just let it go. Maybe you justified it by saying, oh, I didn't mean that. that. That's on them. That's how they took it. I didn't mean it that way. This doesn't give you that allowance. It doesn't give you that out. It's saying if there's something, your brother or sister has something against you on any level and in any way, deal with it. Church, my brothers, my sisters, 
Jesus considers it far more important to be reconciled to a brother or a sister than to perform any religious duty or act of worship. He considers it far more important for us to be right. And if there's reconciliation needed, he wants us to be reconciled before we do any sort of praising of him. We need to consider it more important too. Let me just ask you this. Think about this with me. How much more unified would we be if we constantly operated that way? How much more pleasing would our worship be in God's sight? If we came in to the church and all of a sudden the Spirit of God says to us in some way, hey, you remember Monday? When you had that conversation, the conversation didn't end well. I want you to feel, I, I want you to be sensitive. I want you to have the sense that they're holding on to that. There's some bitterness there. There's a, there's a root of bitterness that's starting to grow. Deal with it. You, you need to go deal with it. What would it be like if instead of just coming in and pretending like everything was okay, sitting in our chairs, singing our songs, we stopped, I mean, like mid-song, and went over and tapped somebody on the shoulder and said, hey, can you come here for a second? And we went back in that room right there, or out there, and we said, look, I know there's something between us, and I want to get rid of it. I love you too much, and I love our Lord too much, and I want to praise him with a pure heart. Will you forgive me? What would it be like if that's how we operated? Think of how much more unified we'd be. Think of how much sweeter and more powerful our praise would be. Think about how much more open you'd be to hear from the Spirit of God as His Word is preached. If we went about things that way. Well, then he gives the second illustration. Matthew 5, 25-26. Reach a settlement quickly. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him to the court. Or your adversary will hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer. And you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out of there until you've paid the last penny. This is something, again, that people would have identified with and understood in the culture, how things went, how things were done. But this illustration is a picture of sin, of one believer against another. It's sin within the body, sin between two believers. And it's an illustration of what the response should be. It's just as relevant for us today. Like settling a debt with someone outside of court before it's taken out of our hands and escalated. In the same way, Christian, a sin issue against our fellow believer needs to be resolved as quickly as possible. Not unaddressed and allowed to harbor and fester. Not allowed to reach the point that God has to deal with it directly because, hey, we do not want it to get to that point. We don't want it to get to that point. 
Scripture says it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God, and that's written to believers. Citizens of Christ's kingdom, which you are if you're a Christian, citizens of Christ's kingdom need to work out their difficulties and their differences directly with one another. That's a big part of what should set us apart from the world and the way they do things. It's what should mark us. So, murder begins in the heart long before it's carried out by the hands. And we need to understand that. We need to understand that just because something is ancient doesn't necessarily mean that it's accurate. And we definitely need to understand and believe and recall and apply that for God to accept our worship, which we all want, we have to be right with our fellow believers. May that be true of us. May that mark and define us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the relevancy of it. Thank you for how practical it is. Thank you that what Jesus' original audience needed to hear, you've preserved it for us because we need to hear it too. Give us ears to hear what you would say to us, Holy Spirit. Give us ears to hear what you would say. Give us a heart that would respond. Help us to make personal application. Help us to do whatever needs to be done by your power, we pray.